the opportunity to tell you about a new way that we at Crossway Fellowship are beginning to articulate our identity as a church body. This is not a fundamental change in who we are. It's not any changes in our doctrine, but it is simply a way of changing how we uh, communicate ourselves. And um, this is really an identity that has emerged over the last six years of we as, walk, as we have walked together as Crossway Fellowship. Part of, uh, part of that process is describing our identity in a new way, as well as articulating some new core commitments. We are a community of faith called by the gospel of Jesus Christ to serve and glorify the living God. As such, we are compelled to love others, to obey the truth, to walk together, and to proclaim Christ. And let me remind you that these core commitments of loving others, obeying the truth, walking together, proclaiming Christ, are really DNA. We don't have walking together ministries. We don't have loving others ministries. And everything that we're doing, whether you're in a community group or whether you're going to Nagaland in India, whatever it is, you are doing these four things. You are being these four things, loving others, obeying the truth, walking together, and proclaiming Christ. Well, as I said a couple of weeks ago, I want to take the next few weeks, beginning today, to kind of dig down underneath these phrases so that you can see the biblical foundations for them. And they really could go in any order because they are not prioritized, this loving others, walking together, proclaiming Christ, obeying the truth. You really could put them in in any order, but I'm just going to go in the order that we've stated them. And so our first core commitment then is loving others. We are compelled to love others. So let me pray for us as we get into the word. Lord Jesus, as we come now to your word to give it our full attention, nourish us with its truth, and we ask that you would continue to conform us to your image, that you would continue to do this work of transformation that only you can accomplish in us, beginning with our minds, how we think, our attitudes, and them working out in how we live, our behavior. And we ask these things in your name and according to your will. Amen. Love is a vast subject, of course, and anything that would come close to a thorough treatment of love would take a a lengthy series of sermons, not just one. Because even in the Bible, we find love presented in different ways. We find love described in the context of different relationships. There is, for example, God's love for us. How much God has loved us. And our love for God. There is God the Father's love for God the Son and vice versa. We call this in theological studies an intra-Trinitarian love. That the members of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, love one another perfectly. Many times, Jesus says throughout the gospel, the Father loves me, I love the Father. 
Of course there is in the Bible then our love for one another, people's love for other people. But even then we find a variety of kinds of love and different kinds of relationships where love is to be displayed and practiced. There is a love for fellow Christians. There is a love for strangers and a love for outcasts. There is a love for enemies. There is even, in the Bible, romantic love. And all of these different types of love don't use certain categories of terms. You may hear different words for love that we talk about, and sometimes they have some significance. But quite frankly, the Bible, and the New Testament especially, uses these words very interchangeably. Words like agape, what we think of as a self-sacrificial love. Phileo a kind of love that we love family or brothers with, an affectionate kind of love. Philadelphia, this is a uh, brotherly love. It's putting the word phileo and adelphos, brother, love, together. So there are these different words, but they're used very often, like I said, interchangeably. But we see all of these in the Bible And we see all of them described and presented at different times in different ways, which is part of what makes this just a huge subject. D.A. Carson, in his very helpful book, Love in Hard Places, suggests that our culture saunters between two views of love, an erotic view in which love is reduced to sexual desire. This, of course, is the kind of love that is prevalent in just about every form of media, whether that's movies, TV, songs, any kind of entertainment. We are saturated with it. That's not to say that to use the term love in a romantic or uh, erotic sense is a wrong use of the word, but the problem is reducing love equating it or defining love as just that so that when we talk about love, that's all we as a culture think of. So that is one view that Carson identifies that we as a culture saunter between. The other is a sentimental view. And this is a view of love that is reduced to niceness, as Carson puts it, where love simply means you are nice to everybody. It means that love doesn't criticize, love doesn't challenge, love is never divisive, love always accepts. This has profound effects on how we understand God's love for us, how we are to love others. But when we talk about loving others as a church, as believers who come together as a local body, as Crossway Fellowship, we are talking about a love that is distinct, a love that that identifies us as God's people. We are compelled by our identity to gladly put others ahead of ourselves, even at cost to ourselves, for even those who are opposed to us, even those who might be hostile to us, do us wrong. Now, it might be helpful to just give a couple more caveats. 
We know that love is more than feelings. The will is involved. So contrary to the vast majority of pop culture songs and movies, love does not flit in and out with how we feel day to day, moment to moment. We don't only love because we feel like it. At the same time, love is more than action. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, love is a verb. That is true, but love is more than action because it is possible to do loving deeds, even to sacrifice for others without loving them. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3, if I give away all that I have, even if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. That sounds impossible. How could someone sacrifice their own life on behalf of others to give up everything and not actually love? And Paul says it can happen. On the other hand, action is necessary to love. Love is more than feelings, and love is more than just words. Mere words aren't enough. As John writes in 1 John 3.18, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So you see, really loving others, living a life of love, has certain parameters It's not just feelings, the will is involved. At the same time, it's not just duty and doing actions. You can do that and not really love other people. But you can't just say it and not act either. Again, love is a vast subject. So I've decided to focus today on what we mean when we say we are compelled to love others really by answering two questions. First, what compels us to love others? What is it? Why are we compelled? And secondly, how do we measure if we are loving others well or not loving others well? And then I'm going to suggest three key questions that we can ask ourselves as a church. So first then, what compels us to love others? I'm going to answer these with two broad answers, this question. What compels us to love others? First is love's priority. Love's priority. What makes love a priority for God's people, for Christians? Well, first of all, there is a commandment priority. There's a commandment priority. Let's look at Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. We're going to be jumping around a lot today, okay, which is not characteristic when I preach. But this is a topic, and we're going to be jumping around. So I believe most of the scriptures are going to be up front. Please feel free to turn your Bibles as well, but they should be up front for you. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another... And seeing that he answered them well, this is Jesus answering Pharisees, those familiar with God's laws, they're disputing. So one scribe comes up 
And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, let's note a couple of things. First of all, Jesus begins his answer with a statement, perhaps the most famous and well-known declaration in the Jewish faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Jesus makes this statement so that when he refers to the commandment to love the Lord your God, he is talking about the one true God who is not many gods. That he is one, he is a whole. And so the greatest commandment then includes this statement about God's nature. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength, everything you are. The second is this. Now let's note this. The scribe asked for what? The most important commandment. Single. What is the top? What is the number one And Jesus answers very clearly what is the number one, but he adds the second on his own initiative. So while there are two commandments, clearly a first and a second that Jesus identifies, Jesus' answer shows that loving God and loving others are so bound together that you can't talk of the one without the other. They are inescapably linked, loving God and loving others. To put it another way, the vertical relationship with God that the first commandment establishes, loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the horizontal relationships with other people, they are inseparable. We continue verse 32. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So this scribe hears Jesus and he agrees with him. He is in tune with Jesus' words. And he agrees. And he even goes on to make the point that these are worth more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So all of the system, all of the trappings, all of the things that are obedience to God are not invaluable or cast off. But they don't mean anything if God is not loved and people are not loved. And Jesus sees 
a wise answer. When he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God, he means that this person is approaching a correct understanding of the kingdom's priorities. The kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming, that he's teaching. He doesn't mean you've almost earned your way into the kingdom. He means that you are grasping it. You are beginning to understand it. Now, the Apostle Paul makes a similar explanation. Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So Paul now is building on what Jesus has said, that this new, the kingdom, within the church, that the way the law is fulfilled, the way the law is lived out is through love. Love fulfills the law. And he points to the the second half of the Ten Commandments. And though he doesn't say it, what Paul leaves unsaid and what is implied is the first half of the Ten Commandments deal with what? The first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second half of the Ten Commandments deal with the horizontal So this loving one another, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, how can it summarize the law? Because love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. The Apostle John is consistent with what Jesus says and what Paul says. By the way, there are many other passages As I said, I'm condensing. I'm just giving you a few. But in 2 John, verses 5 and 6, we don't go to 2 John a lot. 2 John, verses 5 and 6. And now I ask you, dear lady, John is writing, either he's calling the church a lady, or he is actually writing to someone in the church, but more likely he is referring to the church as a lady. Not as though I were writing you a new commandment, But the one we have had from the beginning that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. Here is the commandment priority of love. We walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment. Just as you have heard from the beginning so that you should walk in it. What's he saying? He's saying that all of the commandments are comprised in this one commandment. It's the summary commandment that you love one another. He says it again in 1 John 3, verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. So there is a commandment priority for loving one another. There's also a discipleship priority. 
a discipleship priority. And by that, I mean it, it marks or it defines who true followers of Jesus are. John chapter 15. This is in the upper room. This is uh, what we call the upper room discourse where Jesus is speaking with his disciples for the last time before he is crucified. And among his instructions, he says this to them. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Stay in it. Don't wander out of it. How do we do that? Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So here we see these various relationships all bound up together. The Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Son. The Son demonstrates his love for the Father by remaining or abiding in the Father's commandments. So the father's love for the son and the son's abiding in the father's love sets the pattern for how we abide in Jesus' love for us, which is keeping his commandments. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Again, my commandment. Jesus only have one commandment? Jesus commanded many things. But this is the summary commandment. This is the essential commandment of all of his commandments, that you love one another. John would even go further. Again, we go to 1 John chapter 4 beginning in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. The world knows love. Even those who don't know God knows, know love, know what it means to love. Mothers know what it is to love their children, even sacrificially. Fathers, husbands, men in war, know what it is to love their brotherhood, love their families, even sacrifice. But the kind of love that we know and can experience as God's people are because God has first loved us. And in fact, human beings can know love and extend love because they are made in God's image. So there is a general sense in which everybody can love because God has first loved them, and we'll talk more about this in a few minutes. There's also a special sense in which we love as God's people because God has first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Well, that's definitive, isn't it? If we don't love others, 
we don't love God. No matter what we tell ourselves, no matter what we put on our websites or our flyers, if we don't love others, we don't love God. Because you see, love does not allow for the duplicity that says, I love God, but I just don't love people. In fact, if you say that, if you feel that, if you, if you think that, the scripture says you're a liar. It's impossible. Love doesn't allow for that duplicity. So there is a discipleship priority. If we are going to follow Jesus, if we're going to be his disciples, if we're going to be his people, we must abide in his love. We must stay within it. That means receiving love and loving him back. How do we do that? Obeying his commands. And we're going to talk more about obeying the truth next week. But this is the discipleship priority. And here in 1 John, John says, you can't, you can't say you love God. You can't say you belong to God if you don't love others. They come together. That is discipleship. That's not optional. That's not a deeper walk. That isn't for special Christians. That's what it means to be a Christian. So much so that John says, if you say that you love God, but you don't love others, you're lying. You're lying to yourself, and you're putting on a front. There's also a missional priority. There's also a missional priority. Just as our, uh, our love for others is bound up with God's love for us and our loving of God, you can also say that there's a relationship between our loving one another and our loving those outside of the church, those who don't know God, the world, the culture, whatever term you want to use. We see this in John chapter 13, Verse 34, back to this scene, uh, the, the upper room, Jesus speaking with his disciples before he's crucified. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. And when Jesus says a new commandment, it's not, he's not saying he's never said this before. He's saying, I'm renewing this commandment. I'm telling you again. We break it all down and we start all over from scratch I'm renewing everything here. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, to understand the context, Jesus has just, as the disciples are arguing over who's the greatest, Jesus has gotten up from dinner, wrapped a, a towel around his waist, grabbed a basin of water, and begun to wash the disciples' feet. He has demeaned himself. He is demonstrating, and really he's setting the stage. He's pointing to the cross. He's about to die for them. And he's leaving them with one last, one last legacy that they should humble themselves and wash each other's feet. So when he says... Uh, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. He's pointing to the immediate, 
demonstration of his love in washing their feet, the humility. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. Jesus is saying that it is an identifying mark of the people of God, of his people, his children, to the rest of the world, to all of humanity, that we belong to him if we love each other. Loving one another is a testimony. It is an apologetic for the reality of Jesus' claims to be who he said he was and who we say he is. We love one another. This means that loving others identifies us as belonging to Jesus. So there is this evangelistic, there is this missional effect of our loving each other on those who, who are not Jesus' disciples. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So for these three things in these three ways, I should say, alone, love is a priority. And we are compelled to love others because of its priority for the people of God, for us as a church. There is this commandment priority, there is a discipleship priority, and there is a missional priority to loving others. Secondly, what compels us to love others? Love's source. Love's source. Again, 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us, right? God is the beginning point of love. And we see this played out in two ways. First of all, God loves all people providentially. God loves all people providentially. And by providentially, I mean in his sovereignty as God, as creator of all people, of the human race. God loves the human race as he has created it. He loves us. Perhaps the greatest the greatest proof or explanation of this is found in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and he is correcting a lot of misconceptions of what it means to be God's people, what it means to really be a kingdom people. And he says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Let's pause for a second. Jesus is talking about is the very commonly held attitude that we are to love your neighbor, and, but it's okay to hate your enemy. And perhaps grounds were found for that even in the Old Testament where uh, the the Old Testament writers, especially in the Psalms, would write that they hate God's enemies. That do I not hate those who hate you? Hate the wicked. And this is talking about those who are opposed to God as the, the, the people of God, as the kingdom of God, 
by which other people were to come and know God, that they would profane God, that they would uh, place themselves, set themselves up as enemies of God's people, that there is a rejection of their ways. That's what the psalmists are talking about, the Old Testament writers. They're not talking about a personal hate. I hate that person because he hurt me. But in Jesus' day, that had become a justification. This is why in Luke chapter 10, and we're going to look at this passage in a little bit, but Luke chapter 10, a scribe approaches Jesus and says, Who is my neighbor? Because if we're to love our neighbor but can hate our enemies, we need to define who our neighbor is. Verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. What is it about how the Father loves those who are enemies? For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, we usually call this common grace, that God displays grace to even those who are not his own people, to all of creation. But Jesus doesn't use the word grace. Jesus is talking about love. And he's talking about God's love for even Humanity who has rebelled against him, who blasphemes him, rejects him, hates him, that God makes his sun rise even on them and his rains to fall on them, the just and the unjust, even those who are wicked, even oppressors. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? If you just scratch other people's backs because they scratch your back, how is that definitively Jesus' love? How is that definitively Christian love? How does that distinguish the people of God? It doesn't. Because even the world does that. Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Jesus by perfect doesn't mean sinless here. He means whole, complete. Your love for others must be complete in the way that the Father's love for all people is complete. He sends the sun and the rain and love and relationships and bounty on both the good and the evil, the just and the unjust. Our love is not perfect or complete unless we are displaying the same kind of love. Unless we love people who don't necessarily love us first or love us in return. But we're to be like God who loves all providentially. So we are to love enemies as well. This compels us to love others. Now let's think about John 3.16. Used to be, maybe it still is, the most 
well-known verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How is it that God can love the whole world? He has provided the son, his only son. He gave his only son. For whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. This verse speaks of that door and that opportunity to everybody. That Jesus' death on the cross, whom God the Father gave, opens up salvation to the human race. God so loved the world. It's the way we're to love people. We are compelled because of love's source. God loves God loves people. God loves wicked people. God loves his enemies. And you know what? You are proof of it. Because you one time were God's enemy. None of you started off as God's friend, and neither did I. And if God didn't love his enemies, none of us would be here. So God loves all people providentially. We can also look at it this way, see how it plays out. That God loves his people specially. God loves his people specially. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. God's sovereign, special love for those whom he has elected, his people, those whom he has called out of darkness to himself. It's inescapable, these two things, God's love for the whole world and God's special love for his people. But there it is. It's very clear. In love, God predestined us for adoption. Ephesians chapter 5 Verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So here's the relationship. God is Father. We are his beloved children. We are those whom God has called to himself to be his children. Therefore, we are to imitate him. Be like him. Like a child models his parents. Verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There you go. Christ loved us. How? Because he gave himself up for us by giving himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Jesus loved us in that act. That is a special love for his people. And because Jesus has loved us and given himself up for us, we are to walk in love. What does that mean? This idea of walking in is to say that in everything we do, we are to be loving others. We are to be loving one another. So where, whatever you're doing, you're in the path of love. 
Who's the source? In this case, it's Jesus himself. Christ loved us. Again, 1 John chapter 4. Some more stinging words. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Here we go. For John, in the book of 1 John, everything is extremes. There are two absolutes. There's love, hate. There is God, there is the devil. There is uh, God, there is the world. There is light, there is darkness. There are these two realms and there's nothing in between them and you are either in one or you are in the other. That is an absolute truth. John writes the letter of 1 John with those absolute boundaries in place. So when he says, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, he is saying that those who love belong in this realm, the realm of love and light and faith and God. And those who do not love belong to the realm of darkness and hatred and judgment and the world. And there's no other realm, there's nothing in between them. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. There you go. There's the universal, absolute. And this statement, God is love. It is the essence of his nature. Verse 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest, was displayed, was made known among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins Again, love doesn't start with us. God's love started with him. He initiated love. He began with love. He extended love to you first and to me. And he did so by sending his son to be the propitiation. This big word propitiation basically, basically means this, wrath absorber. Jesus took the wrath, the wrath that was due to us because we come out of the realm of darkness and sin and rebellion and falsehood and the world. There had to be propitiation. God's wrath, his righteousness, his right anger and judgment on sin and our condition had to be atoned for. It had to be propitiated. That wrath had to be absorbed somewhere. Jesus took that wrath. He is the source, and he loved us specially. He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. There's the basis for loving others right there. That's why we're compelled, because God so loved us that he absorbed his own wrath 
that we might live through him. That's how much he loved us. And we ought to love one another. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. No one has ever seen God. You can't see love displayed because God himself physically, we're not talking about Jesus, we're talking about the Godhead, physically showed up and you can hug him or something. No one has ever seen God. That's what John means. We've seen the glory of God dwell among us in the person of Jesus. But no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us. God is here. God is present in our love for one another. And his love is perfected. It's made whole. It's brought to fruitfulness when we love each other. So we are compelled. What compels us? Love's priority and love's source. That God loves all people and God has loved us specially. Now, how do we measure whether or not we're loving one another well? How do we measure that? I want to give you three questions to measure if we're loving others well. Okay, this is a way. There could be others. There are many. There aren't just three tests of love. But I think these are fairly summary, and I think they also hit us on the sore spots. They hit us where questioning ourselves or testing ourselves or saying, are we really loving one another, is really seen. Okay, first of all, the first question, are we forbearing? Are we forbearing? This isn't a word we use a lot, but it's a powerful word. It's a rich word. To forbear. In other words, are we patient? Especially, and this is really the point, how well do we deal with being wronged or offended or harmed by someone else? That's forbearance. It's to bear long with other people. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, that's forgiveness. And they are related, and we're going to see that in some of the passages here. But forgiveness is part of forbearance. Forbearance is actually the larger title, the larger banner. Forgiveness is part of that forbearing with one another. Are we patient? How do we deal with being wronged? How do we deal with being harmed by someone? That harm may come from one another, it may come from within the body. And in fact, most of these passages that I'm going to read here have to do with the relationships within the church. They have to do with relationships with fellow Christians. But it may also come from outside. Need I go back and summarize the book of 1 Peter? It may come from hostility from those who don't know God who aren't in the church. But we already saw in Matthew chapter 5, right? We are to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us. But are we forbearing? Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, bearing with one another in love. There you go. Bearing with one another. He also talks about in this verse patience, kindness. Bear with one another. 
We overlook things. We absorb some wrongs done to us. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Here we go. God's special love for us is bound up in this. Because God has chosen us, we are holy, set apart to him, beloved by him. Put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. So when the offense can't be absorbed, it can't be overlooked, there is a complaint against one another, we do what? We forgive. That's part of the bearing with one another. We forgive. What's the basis? Why must we forgive? Why must we be so ready to forgive, quick to forgive? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. There you go. You have sinned against God and wronged God and offended God infinitely more than any other human being could ever offend or wrong you. That's what Paul's saying. And if God can forgive us for our offenses against him, and we stand as people forgiven, we have to forgive others. We must forgive others. And above all these, verse 14, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So the idea here then is this image if we put on love and that just coordinates all of the compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and the forgiveness that we extend to each other. That's life in the body. Are we forbearing? Have to go to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Again, this has the idea of we're going to wrong each other. Sometimes they're accidentally, sometimes it's unknowingly, sometimes it's intentionally or deliberately. But loving one another absorbs those things and says, you know what? I'm just not going to count it. I'm just going to erase it from the book. I'm not going to hold it against somebody. That's how love covers a multitude of sins. And if we didn't, we'd fall apart as a church. Okay? We'd fall apart. I think that's why the writers of the New Testament Repeat these commands over and over. Again, I'm giving you a super small sample of what the New Testament says about loving one another. It's everywhere. And it is what primarily makes us distinct in the world. It's what's to distinguish us. The world knows love. It knows what it means to love but loving those who wrong us, loving those who offend us, loving those who are hostile to us, that is not the world. And it's exactly why Jesus said to his disciples, by this, the world, all people will know that you are my disciples. 
that you love one another. Because Jesus means this by loving one another. This forbearance, forgiving. So it's the first question. To measure if we're loving one another well, are we forbearing? Secondly, are we redemptive? Are we redemptive? And when I say redemptive, I mean that love, true love, does not wink at sin. It does not avoid dealing with sin. True love doesn't accept that which is deceptive, that which is false, that which is harmful. True love calls sin, sin. Real love discerns between truth and error, right and wrong, good and evil. So by redemptive, I mean that real love doesn't leave someone who is heading for judgment and ruin without warning them. You can't call that love. Or, as I mentioned earlier in D.A. Carson's words, niceness. So if someone is driving down the road toward a bridge over a, a large chasm, and that bridge is out, and I know that bridge is out, and they're driving toward me, and I don't do something to warn them, is that love? If I jump in front of the car and say, the bridge is out, the bridge is out, and if you keep driving, you will plummet to your own destruction. Is that unloving? That is what the gospel proclamation is, friends. This is what it is, you guys. It is coming and saying, hey, your life, you are headed to judgment. You are headed to destruction. And the road may be great right now, but the bridge you think will keep you from it is out. It is gone. You better turn back and go the other way. Is it, loving me, is it loving for me to say, well, I don't know, that's a sensitive subject. People don't like to be corrected on how they drive or for me to assume they don't know where they're going. They might get offended. And what right do I have to say that there's really only one bridge or that that bridge won't, you know, isn't really there? It's not love. That's not love. Love is redemptive. Love is redemptive. Paul says this in the most famous passage of love, probably in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6. Amidst all of these other things, love is patient, love is kind, love doesn't boast. He says, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. That rejoice doesn't just mean it doesn't happen, uh, make happy, it doesn't get happy at wrongdoing. He means it doesn't celebrate wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It celebrates the truth. It takes delight in rightness, in moral righteousness, in justice, in fairness. True love cannot celebrate or accept wrongdoing. And not, it can't and be love. It's not love. 
Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Let love be genuine as opposed to artificial, as opposed to fake. Let love be real. Let it be genuine. Look at verse 10. Skip a line. You can see it up here. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And right in the middle of those two commands to love, let love be genuine and love one another, what does he say? Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Discernment. Discernment. Redemptive. Love holds fast to what is good. It abhors what is evil. See how Paul structures that. He makes sure that love encompasses abhorring what is evil. Correction. How many times have I said to my kids, and many of you as parents have said to your kids, I correct you because I love you. Dad isn't doing this to bring you down. Dad is not doing this for the sake of being harsh. I'm correcting you because I want to keep you in the path of life. And if you don't switch paths, the path you're on is a path to destruction. There's love in rebuke. There's love in reproof. There's love in correction. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, and... I've only got a few more pages, so we'll only be here like half an hour more. (laughs) So just, I'm going to ask Frank or Abby or somebody, if the kids start lining up out here, I'm going to be preemptive here, just tell them to come on in, all right? Don't make them stay out there and have to be quiet, okay? All right. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. And let's pause because Paul is saying the goal here so that we may no longer be children, vulnerable, ignorant, naive, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, false teaching, wrong ideas about God, false teachings about morality or immorality, what's right and what's really wrong. So that we aren't tossed about. These are schemes. There is craft and scheming in undermining the people of God. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love. There's the remedy. There's the answer. Speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. There's only one way to do that, according to Paul here in Ephesians chapter 4, if we are going to grow up into Christ, remain in the faith, there must be speaking the truth in love. You can't have love and growth and spiritual security without speaking the truth. 
Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Got to speak the truth in love. Let's go back to, uh, no, first let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Then we'll go back to John chapter 3. 2 Corinthians 2. Now, you've got to understand, as, before I read these two verses, just to set a little scene here for you, Paul and the Corinthians had a rocky relationship. The Corinthian church, and you can read 1 Corinthians, okay? They, they, at points, got sidetracked. They didn't like Paul. They didn't like what he was saying to them. He has to rebuke them. He has to hold them to account. He has to get up in their grill a few times about their attitudes, their pride, their, uh, their tolerance of sin in the church. This is a subsequent letter. This is a letter following that in which Paul is pointing to uh, some travel plans and all kinds of different things, okay? But verse 3 And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. Paul is looking at the Corinthians and saying, you can cause me a lot of pain. And the pain isn't a personal one, though it was personal. But the pain is their their refusal to follow Paul and to listen to Paul was a refusal to follow God. Refusal to grow spiritually. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. What's he saying? He's saying, I wrote to rebuke you. I wrote you with correction. I wrote, in a way, getting in your face. Intervening in your lives and how you do church and all of those things, I did all of that out of anguish of heart, out of affliction with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul says, I did all of that. I went to bat. I got into the mess of having to correct you out of an abundant love for you. I wanted you to see that I loved you. And that's why I got into your lives, and that's why I corrected you. That's why I confronted sin and wrong attitudes and all of these things. Now, let's go back to John chapter 3. We looked at verse 16. We're going to start there. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus' mission, when he first came, was one to give his life and to provide salvation. Not to bring judgment and condemnation at that time. Verse 18, though. This part's usually left off. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Okay, So God loves the whole world, but he calls for faith. He calls for the world to believe him, to lay aside its own pride, its own autonomy, its own self-will, and to humbly accept the love that he's provided 
And someone who rejects stands condemned already, even though Jesus isn't there, didn't come that time. He came to die and to save, not to condemn, but they're already standing in condemnation if they won't receive the love that is offered. And this is the judgment, verse 19. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You can't come to the love without coming into the light. You can't know God's love, this love that he has for the world, if you don't come into the light. God's love for you is the light which exposes our real condition as rebels, as sinners, as wicked. You can't have one or the other. You have both. You must have both. So again, we have to ask the question, are we redemptive? Because you see, real love confronts sin in whatever ways That happens redemptively. We want to see people saved and changed. And we can't really say you love people if that's not what's compelling you. Is their own safety, their own need, their real needs, not what they feel, but their real needs as God says they need. Okay, last question. Are we impartial? Are we impartial? In other words, do we distinguish between who we will love and who we won't love? Do we consider some worthy of love and others unworthy of love? Now, those distinctions, that partiality may fall along the lines of race. It may fall along the lines of education, whether or not people are cultured or not. It may fall along the lines of age whether or not they're morally clean or immoral, whether or not they're disabled or disfigured. Whatever the criteria are that we use to distinguish, to uh, exert partiality, is not love. When we say we love people, when we love others, we love all people because all people are made in God's image. James chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So what James is saying is this, and I can only give a a surface level treatment, right? But he's saying this, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scriptures, you should love your neighbor as yourself. If you're saying, I love my neighbor, you're doing well, good. But if you show partiality, if you don't show love for all types of people and all people and all places in life and and, uh, whoever they are, then you are showing partiality. You are deciding who deserves your love and who gets love and who does not. If you show partiality, you are committing, your, uh, committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. 
For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act, and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And here's what James is saying. That the word of God that tells us to love one another's uh, love one another, to love others, and to not show partiality. We can't, claim, we can't compartmentalize God's commandments and say we're following God's commandments when we ignore some of them. And we can't say we're truly loving our neighbors when we're distinguishing that some are more worthy of love than others. That is a duplicity and a hypocrisy that the gospel does not tolerate. That's what James is saying. Luke chapter 10. I'm going to read the whole passage, okay? You all know this passage. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. Beginning in verse 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. So his, his stance toward Jesus is one of trying to make Jesus stumble saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is a chess game between the teacher of the law and Jesus. He knows what Jesus is going to say already. And he said to them, and he said to him, and Jesus says it, and he said to him, You have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Well, there's your answer. You already know it. Ah, here comes. Here comes the kicker, though. Here comes the hook. I'll get him with this, right? Verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? That justify himself means win the argument, essentially, to trap Jesus, to make himself look right and square and make Jesus look askew like he doesn't get it. Uh, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. If you know the story of the Good Samaritan, uh, the man, and it's, he's Jewish, he falls, in the, he falls into the ditch after being, or is left in the ditch after being mugged, robbed, beaten with nothing. A priest comes by, whoop, right on by, ignores him. Another priest comes by, whoop, ignores him. Two people who should have loved their own comrade, their own fellow Israelite, leave him in the ditch to die. Along comes a Samaritan. Samaritans, Israelites, Jews, they didn't get along. They're in conflict. They're enemies. He picks him up, takes him to an inn, nurses him, brings him back to health, and leaves him at the inn and tells the innkeeper, I'll come back. You keep him here. You keep him well. When I come back, I'll pay any of the expenses that are incurred. And Jesus finishes this parable, this story, with this question, verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. There's your neighbor. Your neighbor is the person you ought to think of as an enemy. No partiality. Jesus is saying you can't claim to love your neighbor and not love your enemy. Jesus re just redefined what a neighbor was. 
So the question for us then, though, is who's our neighbor? Everyone, even enemies, all races, all ethnicities, everything. Okay, And that goes both ways. That means all ethnicities and all races and all education levels and all economic strata need to love one another in both directions. All right, well, I hope those questions are helpful. They're questions to ask ourselves, and I think, again, that they are main ones who hit, that hit on the sore spots for us. Are we forbearing? Are we, are we bearing with one another when we are wronged, when we're offended? Secondly, are we, um, are we loving in a way that's redemptive? Are we, we, we don't define love as just accepting anything. And lastly, are we impartial? Do we really show love to everyone? All right. Well, I'll let the Lord take those and work those into your hearts. Okay. All right, let's pray. Lord, we really do want to be a church that loves as you have loved, both as you have loved the world and as you have loved us, especially as your people. Help us to be those people. And we know, Lord, that when we stumble in our loving of others, that we have one rest, we have one source of comfort, and that is that you are perfect in love and that you forgive us and you will restore us. Help us to repent where we need to repent, to realign our lives and our wills around being a people who love others and love others well. In your name we ask all of these things, amen.